0: Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. This is a patron-only follow-up to my codependency deep dive. I asked in the deep dive for patrons to write in their own reaction to the deep dive, talking about their own experiences with codependency, because I think that's where a lot of the learning and the wisdom comes from, is to hear people's stories, how the theory applies to people. And I try to do that in the deep dive by providing examples, but to read people's accounts of actual codependency and their observations, I think is very illuminating. So that's what I'm going to do in this episode. I'm going to read all, and there were a lot of people who emailed in. It was interesting how much the deep dive on codependency resonated with people. I didn't, I don't think I expected that, but now that I'm reading all your stories, it makes a lot of sense because codependency as a personality issue, I think is a lot more common and th- than people realize. And I also think that it is, uh, you know, you can have mild cases of it that are, you know, quite common. Like when I start looking around the people that I know, I would say that there's a pretty good percentage that are at least somewhere on the spectrum. Maybe not like full-blown, but but, you know, mildly codependent. And I think it's a real... Uh, ignored area for a variety of reasons that that I might get into. But anyway, so this is a patron-only episode. And if you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron by going to patreon.com. And when you become a patron, you'll get access to this full episode uh, along with a lot of other deep dives that we do. I don't know how long this episode is going to be, but probably long because there's a lot lot of emails. All right. Welcome to the patron zone patrons. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. So this first email, annual upper tier patron Z from Singapore, she writes in and says, there were certain portions of your codependency podcast where I felt as if you were speaking directly to me. Like when you said that it's almost like we can sniff these people out. It reminded me of my first date with my last partner. She she said she needed to tell me something and I jokingly said, "Well, what do you have? If I like you, there must be something wrong with you." So just chime me in here. It's interesting as I make these deep dives and people listen to them, and uh, there's a, a good percentage of people that will say that they'll say like, "Oh my God, I feel like you were speaking directly to me. It was almost like you were reading my mind." And uh, you know, we—I stand on the shoulders of giants, people who have come before me, and done a lot of research and observation of personality and and i think that it's you know it confirms the disorder or the personality type the personality issue when i do a deep dive like this and people are like oh my god that's yeah that's that's me um so that it's it's gratifying to hear and i think that you deserve it you know uh one of the first steps, big first, significant first steps to recovery is to recognize that you have an issue. And if you don't know that an issue like this exists, then you just think that this is just normal life or this is your lot in life or there's something uniquely wrong with you or something. And when, in fact, there's a lot of people who suffer from schemas that generate what we call codependency. You also say here that uh, you, you can almost, it's almost like you can sniff these people out and yeah, it's a really weird phenomenon that when you talk to people, codependent people, but there's all sorts of configurations that end up being attracted to certain people and codependent people, they'll just be like, I don't understand. I I date and every single person I date has, uh, you know, I, I didn't know at first, but very quickly I come to learn that they they had major problems in their life, you know, huge addictions or... Um, just other kinds of problems. And, and they just think, like, how come? I mean, does that, is everyone an addict? Is everyone, does everyone have borderline personalities? Or how come I always meet the people who have narcissism in this town? And the answer is, one, a lot of people are suffering. So there's that. Uh, two, it's hard to know, but my model or my conceptualization is that there are just subtle clues that people will pick up on subtle ways that people will talk. And it's not that you necessarily sniff them out like on Tinder, because how could you know someone's personality? Um, Maybe there are subtle cues on Tinder indicating certain things, but hard to know. Uh, It's more that by the time you get to the first and second date, you're definitely picking up on certain behavior patterns and the way that they talk about things that will subtly... Trigger the attraction system in you to this person because you know that they will fit very neatly into your codependent situation. Anyway, uh, email going on with it. This is a long email, so <laughs> let's probably get through a little fast. I resonate the most with the helpful codependent type, and perhaps I might bleed into the controlling type. I don't tell them who they can meet or be associated with. Or where they can and cannot go, or how they can spend their money. But I get frustrated enough that I would give unsolicited advice in a certain tone that may come across as condescending. Yeah, just chiming in here. You know, to be very overtly controlling, then it's obvious that someone's controlling, like not letting someone leave the house, telling them how to dress, and, you know, beating them or emotionally beating them into submission. These are obviously controlling behaviors and the controlling codependent can exhibit that, but there are more subtle ways that maybe are just as often in anecdotally utilized by the control codependent, which is uh, as you described uh, giving unsolicited advice in a certain tone that comes across as condescending and from your perspective you're thinking well i'm not being i'm not being controlling i'm just i'm just get, i'm frustrated and i'm giving advice you know i'm frustrated with how they're under functioning all the time and you know i'm just i'm just you know at my wits end with their they impact my life and they're destroying themselves and so yeah I, I have a little tone in my voice and but uh when you zoom out and and particularly if you're on the other side of that and people are like oh you know that there's some pressure there. There's some harm going on there. Then we're looking at con- control type of of codependency because the helping type, um, and you know, there's overlap between the helping and the the controlling. You know, the the helping co- codependent in my typology definitely could have some tone sometimes. Definitely could have some pressure, but. In general, say 95% of the time, they're really just pleasantly helping. Maybe occasionally they blow up. But to the controlling type, I would say that they are not 95% controlling. You know, they're probably doing a lot of the helping type as well, pleasantly helping the underfunctioner. But I would say that the controlling type is probably. Obvious, you know, there's obvious messages of control that are consistent and periodic. And, but maybe it's only like 30% of the time, maybe even 20% of the time. Cause if you're always controlling, that could really push someone away eventually, right? And it would really be alarming to the codependent. It's like, wow, I'm really controlling. Obviously, that happens. But I would put people in the controlling type who uh, were just controlling. Uh, a minority of the time, but a but a good chunk, not just five percent, but you know twenty five thirty percent of the time. all right continuing with, continuing with the email uh, she says history of my relationships. My first two girlfriends both had high functioning depression during our relationship. They had suicidal ideation and had attempted suicide. However, I wouldn't say they were under functioners in fact, we're friends now, and they are highly successful in their respective fields. I was always there to either take away the razor or talk them down from the window ledge if not being at their side at the emergency room or the psychiatric ward. I also remember getting tired in the first relationship and that was one of the reasons I left the relationship. At this stage, the idea of codependency never entered my mind. Just chiming in here. So, underfunctioning is not a global thing necessarily. It certainly can be. But many people who... Uh, who codependents are attracted to, you know the person of concern and the underfunctioner, they absolutely can be very successful in their job. For example, you could have someone who was an alcoholic who was very successful in their job. Uh, you could have someone who was a heroin addict who was very successful in their job. You could have someone who had narcissistic personality disorder who was very successful at their job. So just the fact that someone is doing well at their job, does not exclude the possibility of them being the underfunctioner, having an addiction, having a personality disorder, having some impulse control problem, and w- that would fit very well with a codependent person. The fact that they had depression, though, is not necessarily, in my conceptualization, indicative of underfunctioning. If you're depressed, you're definitely suffering and your partner definitely has to adjust to cope with things. But my definition of what will trigger codependency is uh, it involves a problem that is self-destructive, where the person, the underfunctioner, the person of concern, could do things to improve or at least cope, steady the problem, but they're not doing it. And that's the key, because the codependent person steps in. The codependent person becomes the manager. The, uh, the underfunctioner is not managing. They're, they're in a self-destructive cycle. So if you have depression only, that doesn't mean you're underfunctioning, but if you have depression and you refuse to go to therapy and you refuse to go to psychiatry because you have a very weird point of view about that, then an, uh, a codependent person will fit very well with that sort of person because the, the depressed person is self-destructing. Now, can someone who is depressed temporarily go through a time where they don't want to go to therapy or they don't want to go to psychiatry or something? Yeah, but, you know, if after 5, 10 years of depression, you're like, no, this therapy is dumb or medications are stupid or, uh, you know, I... I don't need to do anything to improve my life, or this is just how the world is. There's no point in trying to work on it. That will fit very well with a codependent person. But based on your description, I don't know what that situation is. I mean, the fact that you were were attracted to two people who had major depression is interesting, but not necessarily indicative of of codependency. In fact, as I say that, I think I want to revise my definition To include the word self-destructive, I think that's pretty uh, makes it much more clear. So the short definition that I changed it to was codependency, codependent personality, is characterized by the need to manage someone else who has an ongoing self-destructive behavior problem. Originally, it just had destructive behavior problem, but I think self-destructive, I think, is pretty important because you know if if someone has Say cancer, and they're going, they're doing everything they can, and you, you're married to that person, and there's a lot of, you know, struggle between, uh, you know, the couple and the cancer, and maybe even some fights that emerge between the couple about it. You know, that's not necessarily codependent, but if the person that has cancer is denying they have cancer, or they continue to smoke cigarettes if it's lung cancer, or if they, are refusing to get proper medicate, you know, proper medical treatment, or they start to get real angry towards others and sort of isolate themselves from others, then that's more self destructive, right? Now, what's self destructive? Uh, is it when you have cancer and you're dying? Would we call it self destructive if you go through some bad moods? You know, no, but it and this is psychology, right? It's there's no kind of definitive line. It's it's a call that you make as a clinician. Going on with your email. But 2 years ago, I got into a 15-month relationship with someone who was 18 years old. This time, I am comfortable to say that my partner was an underfunctioner. I would get so frustrated when she did things, quote, unquote, wrong. She would call me when she got terribly drunk. I was livid when she threw up in my car. She had been diagnosed with depression and on medication since she was 15 and has many emotional and perhaps personality issues that I won't pretend to even understand. According to her, she grew up with abuse and her parents are are presently still abusive to her. She often tells me how she has a fear of abandonment and feels worthless. She also has suicidal ideation. From our talks, I gathered that she had had two prior relationships where her partners seemed to have had high control traits. In the last few months of our relationship, I believe she was starting to build an addiction. All right, just chiming in here. So, right, you're saying there's some hallmarks of a of a codependent underfunctional relationship in that you say I would get so frustrated when she did things "quote unquote" wrong. You know, you're putting them in quotes because I'm guessing you're you're like, well, I don't know if it was really wrong, but I saw it as wrong she would call you when she got terribly drunk and would throw up in your car and you would get livid about it. Of course, you know, I think a lot of people would get livid, but when you add all these things up, it's a pattern of anger and control and shame and being condescending to the other person and the other person self-destructing often because of that shame. There's also a, an indication given the age difference between the two of you that could also lend itself to a quote you know, the under functioners, uh, it, it, it facilitates the codependent under functioner relationship. If the under functioner is younger, because it's perceived, you know, the, every, the, the codependent under functioner system believes that the underfunctioner is incapable. And if the young, if the under functioner is younger then it, It helps to, you know, solidify that. Then you also say how, uh, you know, she had two prior relationships where her partner seemed to be highly controlling, and, you know, she seemed to be kind of downwards, downward spiraling, and you were kind of locked in with that or invited in to become a codependent. All right, then annual upper-tier patron Z from Singapore details her schemas. She says, number one, the schema of things will fall apart if I don't fix the problem. So she's saying that she identifies with this codependent schema. Things will fall apart if I don't fix the problem. She says, I started therapy eight weeks ago because I was hitting a brick wall in my breakup recovery and I just couldn't cope anymore. It's making sense to me after listening to your podcast that a possible reason as to why I still find myself holding on to her is because she's not doing better despite being in a new relationship since January. Rationally, this is a terrible position to be, to be somewhat tied to a former partner who has not only rejected me, but arguably using me when she needs a safe place and then blocks my number after. Sometimes I wonder, do I not have any self-respect? And yet at the same time, there's that notion of self-sacrifice and wanting to save them from themselves, that if I don't do it, then who will? All right, just chiming in here. Right, so you're describing the codependent schema of things will fall apart if I don't fix the problem. It's not, I think an important uh, thing to think about if, if you think you might be codependent is, am I worried for them or am I worried for me? I think that's critical because that's differentiation. If they self-destruct I will be sad for them and I worry for them but it's not me it's not my fault it doesn't destroy me especially if it's a former partner uh, who has blocked your number right and doesn't want and broke up with you It's, it's just not your job never was really so that's the question I would ask it's like am am I really altruistically worried for them or is this more my anxiety? Am I managing my anxiety by trying to fix their problems? And this is a thing that we actually talk with a lot of therapists about, that when clients have problems, as they always do, because that's why they're coming in, that it's natural for a therapist to take a lot of responsibility. And so they can kind of fall into a codependent mindset as a therapist, where the, the client's problems... If they're not getting better right away or even if the client's getting worse over time, which happens, it's somehow the fault of the therapist and the therapist gets very anxious. And when they're really anxious and they're blaming themselves, they will get clouded uh, clinically and will act out of that cloud and will harm the client sometimes maybe kind of rejecting the client or moving too fast or telling a client, judging a client, like, you know, how come you're not listening to me? That, that kind of attitude. And then you say, you know, sometimes I wonder, do I not have any self-respect? Well, yeah. I mean, I I don't know if it's self-respect. I don't think that's really the issue. The issue is the anxiety is so high that it compels you and you have a schema. You just take it for granted that it's your job to fix these other people's problems. It's just never, it just never, to the codependent person, there are certain questions that just never cross their mind. And I think this is another part that I didn't really emphasize in the deep dive. For me, I'll just tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm very far from codependency. Um, I mean, I could, I could definitely get into it a little bit, but I have a lot of personality traits that are on the other side of the spectrum. I think I might've gone into this, that I'm very protective of my time. And when other people have problems, I care, but I definitely do not feel responsible. You know, sometimes people email in and say, how do you handle it when clients have all these problems? And I think it's because I just don't really have the schemas that uh, push me into a savior complex. And, And the question, so when someone else has a problem, a question will enter my mind, which is, do I want to take this on? Do I have time? Should this person be dealing with this on their own? Do I even really care? You know, if I had an ex-partner who broke up with me and had all these kinds of, you know, self-destructive behaviors, addiction, depression, relationship problems, would I care? (laughs) I mean, honestly, as a human being, to human being, I would care. But if someone dumped me, I don't know if I would have all that, all that amount of altruism. I mean, you know, uh, I think it's human to be that way, you know? So I think for, for the codependent, the question never crosses their mind. It just is a, it's automatically assumed that it's their job and that they should care. And if they don't care, like what they're, they're a monster or something, you know, so a big recovery step for codependence is introducing questions, introducing questions like, is this really my job? What will happen if I don't step in? Am I assuming this person cannot do it on their own? What gives me the idea that somehow I have, I have the answers. You know, one of the things that I, will tell my trainees is if you're telling your client, particularly if it's an adult, something th- uh, and you're frustrated, you might want to stop and ask yourself, am I telling this client something that is obvious? Because if it's obvious, then something else is at play here. You know, for example, for you, Z from Singapore, it, you your ex-partner calls you up and she's like i'm i'm in a really bad place I, you know i'm i'm getting into drugs and i i'm suffering and my new uh, partner won't help me and and you you've always been there for me and then you find yourself saying things like well maybe you should not use drugs or maybe you should break up and find like a support system or maybe you should uh, distance yourself from your abusive parents or you know If you're telling this person something that is, it seems like the other person doesn't understand it. But if you, but if you stop and think, is this an obvious thing that I'm saying, am I saying anything that's like incredibly genius or am I just saying things that anyone would say? If you're saying things that anyone would say, that gives you a clue that you're in a codependent under functioning relationship because that's often what's occurring is that, the underfunction again, as I was saying earlier, the the codependent and underfunctioner assume that the underfunctioner can't do things on their own. And so these like absurd kinds of advices will come out from the overfunctioner, you know. Like, well maybe you should protect yourself from people who treat you badly. So so anyway, those are the quite anyway, just going on another schema, she says here. Number two, deriving purpose through caretaking and distressing relationships. So Z is saying that she derives purpose through caretaking and distressing relationships. She says, it feels like I'm doing it out of love. My best friend says, you always speak like you know better. I don't think I know better, but I feel like it's my duty to protect them. And that often means that they need to do things differently. I get into this parallel mode when I I get into this parental mode when I lecture them. I don't want them to remain self-destructive. Right. So just chiming in here. Uh, so from the outside, it comes across like you speak like you always know better, condescending, which fits very well with a self shaming, self destructive underfunctioner. You're saying, though, you're like, I don't feel like I know better. I just, f-, you know, and <laughs> this is the way the ego protects itself from itself is that just listen to this sentence that you wrote I don't think I know better, but I feel like it's my duty to protect them, and that often means that they need to do things differently, meaning what you say. (laughs) I don't think I know better, but I think I know better. That's essentially what you're saying. But the ego will protect yourself from that. You'll be like, well, but that's arrogant. Why do I think, I don't think I know better. But then when you describe it, you're clearly describing an attitude of, you know better. But here's the thing, you might know better. (laughs) You might be right. But if it's, you know, something that's quite obvious, like don't do don't use so much drugs, then you just have to wonder, OK, what's happening here? What's the dynamic that's happening here? Because and I didn't go into detail on this as much because uh, I don't know, I just didn't have time. But, you know, the underfunctioner has an equal problem, an equal and related yin, yin and yang problem to the codependent. They there are obvious things that they should be doing to improve their life and they're not doing it the alcoholic is not going to AA. the person with narcissistic personality disorder does not believe they have a personality disorder you know there are obvious things that that they're just not uh attending to the person who has major depression and suicidality is refusing to go to see a psychiatrist uh, for ideological reasons or some other reason. And, you know, these these are obvious things. When you have depression, you see a psychiatrist. When you have an alcohol problem, you go to AA or you seek treatment, right? And when you have narcissistic personality disorder, you talk to a specialist, a therapist who specializes in narcissism. But but they don't do it. And, and that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of like what these people are not doing that are obvious that they should be doing. You know, don't in, into a narcissistic person, don't rage at your family members because they they criticized you slightly, you know, to the person with borderline. Don't assume that everyone is insulting you all the time. You know, you're assuming that these things are happening, but I don't think they're really happening. Uh, you know, th- these are obvious things that are to you as a codependent, you know, quite obvious and maybe to a lot of other people around them. But the underfunctioner, and, and so, so if if an underfunctioner comes along to someone like me, I, I feel a little sucked in to help, but I, I very quickly ask myself these questions. Am I saying something that's obvious? It, if If I've already said this thing to them, why am I going to say it again? I've already said X Y and Z. Why do I think saying it yet again is going to change something? Obviously, obviously this is some kind of issue with them. They're on a journey of some kind and and I'm just watching it. You know, I'll offer help, but but I don't I don't really know what's going on with them. You know, I'm seeing them self-destruct, but and I've given them advice or I've, you know, alluded to certain things, but uh, and that hasn't changed it, so there must be there must be something deeper. And I'll offer. I'll say, hey, if you ever want to talk about it, we we talk about. It. But aside from that, I'm just like moving on in life because they aren't asking me for help, <laughs> uh, or if they were, they're not following my advice. So uh, that's all I can do. And but the codependent doesn't ask themselves that question. They get locked in with the underfunctioner. So, um. And a lot of uh, codependent people have this attitude that you do, Z, which is, I don't think I know better, but I do think I know better. You You go on to say here, perhaps I see fulfilling their needs is fulfilling my own needs. I feel lost and empty when I'm single. I find myself with too much time in my hands and don't know what to do with my days. Unwittingly, I have said, at least it gives me purpose When others ask me why I'm inconveniencing myself by doing things for my partner that they could probably do for themselves, yet when I'm in a relationship, I get tired too. The chaos is tiring. Just chiming in here. Yeah, that's a really wonderful description of the emptiness and the drive to be codependent that I was talking about. You feel lost and empty when you are single. You say, you find yourself with too much time in your hands and you don't know what to do when you're not locked in in a codependent under-functioning dynamic. Because, I don't know if this is true for you, but for codependent personality disordered people, they are in touch with themselves. So uh, for not everyone with codependency, but for, you know, a sizable chunk, uh, their codependent compulsion is partially driven by the fact that when they're not in a codependent under-functioning relationship, they look to themselves. They have to just stare at themselves in the mirror and they don't see anything. They don't feel anything there. And it's terrifying. So, uh, you're, you're sort of illuminating that. But then you also say that, uh, Oh, you say, you say that, uh, when you're in a relationship with a co- under-functioning person that you get very tired so right, there's no winning with codependency. You know, if you're not in a relationship, then you're suffering because of the emptiness and without any purpose. If you're in a relationship with an underfunctioning person, obviously that has less suffering. So there's there's no there's no way out aside from recovery from codependency, which is awareness and corrective experiences and re completely reworking all those schemas and, and really you know, tearing them apart uh, experientially and intellectually, emotionally, relationally. And uh, what you'll get a lot of advice, though, if you're a codependent person, is you just have to be single, they'll say. You know, it's a, that's and I hear this all the time. People will be like, you have to learn how to be on your own. You have to learn how to love yourself. Uh, and this advice, I'm always just rolling my eyes because it's like, if, th- if things were that simple, then, uh, you know, all you all therapy would be it was just well you know just be single for 3 years then you'll be better no your schemas will still be there and you'll be suffering during those 3 years cuz the the problem isn't the relationships always it's it's internal the problem is a problem of schemas and working models and relational trauma you know you go on to say here but do i want to be the utility Do, uh, but do I want to be of utility to others because I don't have anything going on for myself or do I need to be of utility because that feels good with my self-worth being tied to being helpful? Just chiming in here. Yeah, it's, it's probably the latter one. I don't know which one it is for you, but for codependent people, it is that their self-worth is being, is tied to being helpful. You go on here. I don't think I seek out such relationships though. This is when your statement about being circumstantially finding yourself to overfunction throws me off balance and makes me think if perhaps I'm not truly codependent. I've been single for one to two years now in between relationships before, which to me doesn't fit the theory that there is this compulsive need to enmesh with someone and their problems. Also, I can recognize the red flags of people I interact with. Okay, so just chime in here. So you're saying that. You've been single for, you know, one to two years in between relationships before. And you're using that as evidence that you're not codependent. And maybe that's true. Uh, but certainly a lot of codependent people who suffer from codependency can be single uh, for a portion of time. It's not like they're addicted to underfunctioning people. It's just that they they fit very well with them. And while you were single... I I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't have codependent leanings in other relationships that you were in, even if it was just internal. That's another thing to, to think about is that you can be codependently oriented without even behaving as though you're codependent. You know, it's just a lot of impulses in your mind. Like I could even see codependency manifesting with characters on TV, even like a reality TV show. I could see a codependent person really locking in in a paras, parasocial way with, you know, some character on a reality TV show and feeling very compelled to fix their problems and uh, you know compulsively watching the show and yelling at the screen um trying to help this self-destructive cast member on a reality TV show. So being in, you don't have to be in a relationship necessarily to to distract yourself from the emptiness on the inside through codependent means and then you also but i don't know i i i don't i'm not you're you're much more aware of you than than i am um you know cuz there is the possibility that you just randomly came across uh, a few underfunctioners who just kind of pushed you into a overfunctioning but not codependent uh, mindset you know, if you have someone who is suicidal that you're dating and uh, you don't feel some need to help them, you know, and to try to pick up the pieces around them, uh, then, you know, there's something wrong with you to some extent. So uh, and then you also say that you can recognize the red flags of the people that you attract. And yeah, so, you know, there's different levels to this. Uh, you can certainly be on the mild to moderate side of the spectrum instead of severe and have some self-aware, be more easily self-aware, more easily aware of, you know, how the process goes. All right. Continuing with your email, you say that you identify with the schema that states, I need to rescue or things will fall apart. You say here, I manage my partners. My latest partner mentioned, you feel better when you have control. In an attempt to rescue, I have a lot of unsolic- I give a lot of unsolicited advice to my best friend. It doesn't feel good to feel the need to help or rescue these people because it can get tiring, but and I am truly ashamed of the times I hurt them when I micromanage them. I want to stop micromanaging. I don't want them to continue to be destructive and I feel proud when they achieve something. Yeah, so just chiming in here. Well, you have a lot of self awareness. I've worked with a lot of codependent people, and I'll tell you that it's not uh, it's it's really quite advanced in my experience for someone with codependency to be able to say, "I micromanage other people," and I hear things from others that indicate that I can be a little controlling, a little over advice giving, a little micromanaging, and uh, I'm I'm taking that in. Uh, In my experience, a lot of people who suffer from codependency, when they are confronted about their codependency, they do not take it well because it really is unnerving to them because their primary anxiety is what if I take my foot off the gas pedal or take my hands off the steering wheel and allow this other person to drive the car. If I let my hands off the wheel, we're going to go off a cliff where everyone's going to, not just this person, but me too. They're going to drag me off the cliff. Everyone will die. Horrible, horrible things will happen. And by identifying someone as codependent, you're basically saying you're doing too much for this other person. And by implication, you should stop saving this other person. You should stop micromanaging. You should stop helping. You should let them to their own devices. You should let them fall on their face and learn from their own mistakes. That is Utterly terrifying to the codependent person and almost impossible of a thing to even contemplate. And for you to bring that up, it can be so threatening in the same way that if, you know, someone has alcoholism and you say, you know, have you looked at your drinking? The person who is drinking in all likelihood is drinking to self-medicate and they're highly dependent. And so for you to bring that up is so threatening to them that you might stand in the way between them and the, the one thing that regulates them, and, and according to them now, that's how they see it, um, you can, you're such a threat that they might attack you or never talk to you again. So for you, Z, to be able to say, I am listening to people, give me feedback, I'm, I'm kind of ashamed of the fact that I do micromanage and the way I come across to people, this is huge. This is a huge amount of self-awareness and differentiation and altruism towards other people. So I just want to, you know, commend you for that. All right. So then you go into your child background, childhood background. You say, I've always felt my parents were very detached and it was impossible to know what they expected of me. So I just grew up trying to be the best in everything. I had a lot of freedom and don't remember having any curfews. My primary caretakers were my grandparents until the age of 10. I don't think I was parentified in any obvious way. However, my brother is an underfunctioner of sorts. He often skipped school, got with bad company, started smoking and drinking at maybe 14 years old. And nothing much has changed 20 years on. He has been in prison twice for drug offenses. So maybe I was modeled codependency through my mother's relationship with my brother. Just chiming in here. So there's a few a number of things in here, and I, I can't know. You know. This is a brief synopsis of what happened, but there are some red flags here, some signs of you were you know raised by your grandparents until the age of ten. By implication, that's when your you know parents took over. So I'm guessing there was some kind of attachment injury growing up, and some kind of abandonment feelings when you were young. And maybe your grandparents, although loving, maybe you weren't present enough because, you know, if your parents were detached, it's possible your grandparents were a little detached as well. But anyway, it's possible that early in your life, you know, zero to five, you weren't attuned to enough and thus weren't given a chance to really develop a sense of who you are, what you need and your coping mechanism was to focus outward and try to solve other people's problems. You also have kind of a, uh, some hallmarks of codependency that I've seen before. It's not intuitive as to why these things are connected, but it is a a common backstory of parents who are pretty hands off with their kids. Um, If I was to hypothesize, I would say that the kids are struggling with detachment and attachment injury and loneliness But they do get some satisfaction and some self-esteem and some accolades for being responsible and being good at things, being competent. And over time, uh, this adds up to a personality of, I know how to do things. I'm better at things, but I don't know who I am and what I am. So maybe my lot in life is to be good at things for other people and to fix other people's problems. Because if I have everything figured out, then maybe I can solve other people's problems. So there's that. And another fairly common backstory that I'll hear from people with codependency is exactly what you're talking about, where you're observing codependency in your family. You observed codependency, possibly between your mom and your older brother, and you learned that's that's the way you do things you know maybe even that's what women are supposed to do so you know absolutely all right continuing with your email you say some closing thoughts is it possible that my latest relationship has an obvious overfunctioning and underfunctioning dynamic because of our ages she being 18 and i being 30 just chiming in here no it's not obvious 30 year olds can date 18 year olds and have a variety of configurations an eighteen-year-old could be an overfunctioner and a codependent, and the thirty-year-old could be the underfunctioner. Absolutely, in our society, and sometimes, unfortunately, clinically, there is this assumption that age has much more to do with things than, than they than they necessarily do. <laughs> you know, is it uh, as I was saying earlier? Does it uh, help a codependent underfunctioning relationship that the underfunctioner is younger? Yeah, it does, because of the reasons I said, but just the age difference alone doesn't doesn't really tell us much you go on with the email i may be interpreting this wrong but the deep dive seemed it seemed to suggest codependent people would not leave a relationship but i have done that two out of five relationships both times it was me probably getting too tired and i'm not sure if that's just an exception to the rule just chiming in here well No, I mean, if that was what I said or the impression I was giving, that's not what I was trying to say. It's just that people who are codependent will have a harder time leaving a relationship. It's not like they they don't leave relationships. But you also point out that the two times you left, it was because you were getting too tired. And I presume that means too tired of of over-functioning. Now, what that tells us is that perhaps you're not super high in the spectrum, meaning that you have some connection to the self or other kinds of personality traits that are uh, helping you in that situation. You go on to say here, before listening to your deep dive, I was listening to your narcissistic personality disorder podcast. And I actually thought that I have a higher than average percentage of narcissistic traits. For example, I unintentionally talk at people. Eye contact is sometimes a conscious effort. I've heard people call me arrogant I also grew up and suppose now still excelling in various activities in school, college, and now at work. Could both conditions coexist? Just chiming in here. Yeah, 100%. Uh, you can suffer from codependency and narcissism. Absolutely. They don't fit very well together, but uh, you certainly can have traits. I-, I would say, given what you've said, I wouldn't be surprised if you were assessed and conceptualized as being moderately codependent and mildly narcissistic. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from patron Alex from California. They write, can a person be an underfunctioner and an overfunctioner? I'm mostly codependent. I'm a mostly codependent person and I also have a lot of friends who are codependent. In these relationships with these codependent friends, I have felt like I am constantly attuned to my friends' emotions and needs and I caretake for them. And at the same time, I often feel infantilized and degraded and controlled by these friends. Is it possible that we switch off being the underfunctioner and overfunctioner? End of email. Yeah, absolutely. It's not incredibly common because there's this battle, this battle for who gets to be the codependent person. But there are there are people that I've treated, and I, I never talked about that. I didn't talk about this in the deep dive, but I have treated people who have codependency for sure but they also have a underfunctioning side to them or at least a mode that they can go into where they're where they're underfunctioning and will therefore fit very well with a codependent person who also will switch off to occasionally underfunctioning uh you know cuz to be codependent in a way is to be self-destructive right like you could be codependent about someone else's codependency you know what I mean? Like if you had a codependent friend who was codependent with their husband and you were going to your codependent friend and saying, oh, you know, you just need to not be codependent and you were obsessively trying to change them and really enmeshed with their problem of being codependent. You, you, in that, that person in the middle, your, your friend who's married to someone else has both codependency and under functioning, They're both the person of concern. So yeah, that absolutely can happen. All right, this next email is from my good friend, Christy Forrester. You might remember her from being on the podcast before. She says here, I was thinking about how we can feel overly responsible for helping or trying to control systemic change on a larger scale, like through activism, and how harmful it can be when good attempts to influence socially desired Social justice can pathologically in can be pathologically internalized as a crushing sense of your over responsibility resulting in harmful self sacrifice and developing into a codependent relationship with the world at large. Just chime in here. Um, I read that sentence uh, that's quite long i'll <laughs> we'll say but but genius uh, in a very poor manner, but essentially what Christie is saying is you know, can we become codependent with society at large in that we see a problem in society and we enmesh with that problem, obsess on it, you know, self-sacrifice for that problem. Uh, uh, You know, is that a thing? And I hadn't thought about that, but yes, absolutely. I've seen that. Um, I've absolutely seen people who are fighting a good fight and they're, uh, and it's hard to know the line, right because like one of the things that you'll hear me talk about is the dire nature of our destroying of or our altering of the ecology of this planet, and how it, it, it is it's rational to be quite demoralized and or quite angry or quite desperate like it's possible that in fifty or hundred years things are gonna be so bad that. People will look back at people today and say, like, why weren't you rioting in the streets? You should have been doing everything you possibly could have done to change what was, how did you just sit there and watch Netflix while more and more carbon dioxide and and other things were being pumped into the atmosphere when you knew better? And so to some extent, uh, activism intensity might be absolutely rational, but I will also say that I've, you know, observed clients and, and colleagues and friends who are passionate about a cause, and I commend them because the cause I agree with usually, because uh, you know they're in my circle in Seattle, so we tend to agree with each other in Seattle. But they are also destroying their lives or their relationships. Um, I've had clients who did this who will uh, put their marriage in danger because of a a political social justice effort that they're trying to, uh, uh, you know, move on. Now, some people might say, well, but doesn't the activism justify that? And I don't know. You know, I I think that's a, that's a tough question to answer, but I, I have, it has been a question I've had of like, is that person but I didn't frame it that way until Christy suggested, you know, I guess I would frame it retrospectively as, is that person obsessing about solving society's problems at the expense of their own? Because if they didn't focus on that thing outside themselves, they wouldn't know what to focus on because they, they're not in connection with the self. And they also don't believe that they have the right to focus on themselves and they're not comfortable focusing on themselves. So, not that you would give up activism, but that you would also focus on the self, you know what I mean? It could also explain why some people seem to just be 24-7 on Twitter spouting a particular political view, right? That maybe they're enmeshing with the problem because they don't know what else to do with their lives. Not that they're uh, pathetic human beings, but that what if they didn't have that, they would be empty and feel, you know, like they're worthless going on with Christie's email. I was also thinking about cultural pressures to be over-functioning and self-sacrificing. And I keep thinking, and I kept thinking of many people's experience with religion, but Christianity in particular, and how if Jesus is our role model, he was the ultimate self-sacrificing example. He died to help us and to protect us from a powerful and punishing father. This was drilled into my head as a child, that self-sacrifice was the best way to love, that others mattered more than me, rather than a balanced narrative where my needs matter just as much as others. Yeah, another genius uh, uh, angle on this, Christy, I hadn't thought of that. Um, I mean, I guess I kind of thought about it, but I didn't talk about it. But it's important, right, that you'll hear people talk about, how Christianity, particularly certain sects of Christianity, Catholicism, that martyrdom is the highest form of of a life, because from I'm not Catholic, but from what I understand, Catholics often are drilled into their heads this idea of that Jesus died and and suffered, and it's just this frequent image that's pumped into kids' heads of. Jesus being flogged and bloody and, you know, just horrible things happening to him. He did this for you because he loved you. He protected you from your own sins. In a sense, Jesus was codependent to us because of our self destruction. You know, Jesus died on the cross, according to, you know, most Christians, because he was trying to save us from ourselves. He. Literally, in a sense, uh, you know, completed suicide, uh, you know, turned himself in knowing he was going to die, according to the story, because we were sinning and he, his love was so, uh, you know, huge and, and divine and, and wonderful and all encompassing that he, he killed himself for us. And we should do the same, right? We should sacrifice ourselves for others as well. But if we don't also focus on the self, you know, did Jesus ever ask the question, uh, do I want this? Now, you know, some philosophers will say the story of Jesus actually includes some of that. But anyway, but that's the interesting thing, you know, that from birth, certain people are taught essentially codependent Um, you know, tenants, (laughs) you go on to say here, Chrissy. I'm curious about the emerging idea of pro-dependence, which at first blush looks like a response to feeling stigmatized and maybe not understanding that we can approach the development of codependency with compassion. But maybe pro-dependence is just a way to justify continuing harmful self-sacrifice. It smacks as an either-or reaction. Maybe people need to learn how to hold the paradox of the both-and. And that helping others can be both good at times and pathological at others. And we need guidance to know the difference in our healing paths. End of email. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I thought of that, but that the idea of codependence is helpful. But if you go full codependence or full prodependence you miss the both and that helping and even enabling sometimes, honestly, and over can actually be maybe the best course. You know, if like in the example I was giving earlier, someone has cancer and they're, you know, being self-destructive, they're not going to their doctor's appointments or something, and they're just really, they or in denial. It's like, I don't have cancer. And you try to help, but it doesn't really work. And so you just start Sort of picking up the pieces around them, kind of enabling their denial of the fact that they have cancer. Because you just figure, well, they're just kind of going through a tough time today or this week, and they'll—I think—they'll get over it. So, in that situation, is it pathological to be coded or to overfunction or to enable? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so in the way that I described it. So, and that's what I really hope that people. Uh, learn or walk away from these deep dives is that it's really case by case basis, and there's no shame in occasionally overfunctioning or occasionally enabling, uh, depending on the situation. You know, it doesn't mean you're this terrible person, it doesn't mean you're terrible if you do it all the time. <laughs> but I think we all have enabled people in the past, we've all overfunctioned, and the way that people talk about enabling and overfunctioning is just like this this terribly destructive, horrible thing that you did, you know, and it's, it can be, it can be a part of an ongoing huge problem, but, but it's, it's very nuanced, you know, when you actually look at human beings, because, you know, and I think I said this during the deep dive, you're a mother and your son is a heroin addict and, uh, but has a job, but is refusing to go to treatment because he thinks that everything's going to work out fine. And he's hiding it, but occasionally you, you catch glimpses of it. And you're just like, you know, you got to go to treatment. he's like, yeah, well, I, th- I think I have it under control. So what do you do? You're his mom. You love him. And uh, are you supposed to just walk away from that relationship? You know, what if he needs, um, he's, he's 22 and he's a little short on his rent. You know, according to the dogma of some Al-Anon proponents, they would say, "Well, you don't give him that money because that just that that's supporting his his heroin addiction. You're actually a huge part of the problem by giving him that money." Well, maybe in your mind you're like, "Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe I'm enabling him, but if he loses his apartment, then what happens? Does he move back home? Does he start going couch to couch? Does does he?" become even more depressed and you, you know, falls in with the wrong crowd goes and sleeps on the couch of that heroin addict friend of his. And he's now he's using heroin all the time or, you know, and and he quits his job. Like what are you supposed to do as a loving mother of a 22 year old kid like that? Do you, do you just say, I'm sorry, you're using heroin? Yeah, you certainly can. That, that that's also, you know, depending a wise action and a very, Strong action is to be. No, I'm sorry. If if you're actively using heroin, uh, I'm not going to give you any money. And uh, and as soon as you're sober, I absolutely will help you. But until then, I'm I'm just fueling the problem. You have to hit bottom. You have to learn that this is not a manageable life. So you certainly do that. But you know, what if one month you're just like, well, I don't know. I feel like maybe this this time it really is necessary to do that i there's certain dogma that will say you should never enable and it is definitely something to think about if you are a codependent person or if you are enabling someone else's self-destruction you definitely should think about not doing that you know it among all i would say anecdotally of everyone who's enabling i would probably say that 90% should not be enabling. They, it's 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 not helping. And it's not overall the campaign that the person should be going on to actually fix the problem. But I would say about 10% of people are enabling, but it's maybe, given the circumstances, a, a wise choice. So anyway. All right, this next email is from famous patron Ed. He wrote in and said, Regarding the codependency episode, I loved it and learned a lot of useful information. An acquaintance of mine absolutely overfunctions at home with the hallmark fear of catastrophe right around the corner. However, it's fascinating that this plays out in their workplace as well. They seem continually angry, annoyed, and perplexed at the disorganization and incompetence that they perceive at their workplace. Yet they continually will step in, go the extra mile, volunteer to do the work that they claim will avert the impending disaster at their workplace. Seemingly no amount of logic can convince this person that perhaps they ought to step that they ought not to step in to do the work or that perhaps it would be better if the flaws and weaknesses in the system were more clearly revealed in a short term failure that could lead to more long term change for the better. This person complains, expresses frustration, but does a lot of extra work every time. And the process continually repeats. It's, incredib- it's incredible to observe, end of email. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think I talked about an example like that, but I've absolutely seen that where you can be codependent to um, like a workplace. Obviously, you could be codependent to a boss, but even just generally to a workplace, uh, the way a system operates. And you describe it, really well, Ed, in that it's one thing to be annoyed with a system. It's another thing to enable that problem, right? And to be kind of obsessed with the problem, to step in and fix everyone's problems, but to hate it the entire time. Now we're starting to get into the possibility of codependency, meaning that the person needs to fix this problem, might even amplify it, might even get Benefits from, you know, perpetuating this problem. So, through enabling, so that they can continue to step in in a codependent way. Now, of course, this is different than over functioning at a place of work. Uh, you could just be at a place of work that is really dysfunctional and you are elected to the role of the over functioner, meaning that you uh, sort of step in and help and pick up where other people are creating deficits, but you're not, but you don't need to be that way. And so the codependent person will one, be attracted to a workplace that will have this problem. Two, when you point out to them, look, I think you're overfunctioning," and uh, you might even be a little codependent. The person, uh, if they are not codependent, they will say things like, uh, oh yeah, maybe, maybe I should, or, and, or they will just naturally come to that, their own conclusions. Like, you know what? I'm done fixing everyone else's problems here. But if you're codependent and, or you have schemas that lead to codependency, the, the notion of stepping back or allowing the problem to just, uh, uh, be realized, you know, Ed put it this way, like if you don't fix their problems, There will be temporary problems, you know, like, say, you work at a newspaper, and it's dysfunctional. And every day, you got to put out the newspaper. (laughs) In this world, there are still physical newspapers. I guess there are still physical newspapers anyway. And if you don't step in to fix the problem every day, the newspaper will not be published. And that's a big disaster, right? Because that's what newspapers depend on is that that regularity. But If you always step in and fix it, um, they can never learn from their problem. They can never fix their own problem. They can never face their issues, fix it, and learn that, oh, I guess I can fix my problem, that sort of thing. Um, So maybe the paper doesn't come out one day, but on the broader scheme of things, you've actually helped the system to look at itself because they they have a problem anyway. And along these lines, just while I'm on this topic, we don't often talk about this, that relationships at work are incredibly emotionally intense. They can be. They can be just as, if not more, emotionally intense as your family relationships. You can be abused by a boss ongoing. You can have a codependent relationship with someone at work you can very much depend attachment-wise on your relationships with people at work, particularly your superior uh, and others. So we often look at work relationships as, well, you know, that's just work. Or or school, for example, your kids in school, say, oh, it's just their friends at school, or it's just their teacher. No, uh, certainly it can be not significant, but uh, it often can be very significant to the point where I have had clients where 90% of the time we're talking about their work relationships and how their traumas are being triggered, how their attachment needs can or are not being met at work, that sort of thing. All right, this next email is from upper tier patron Jasmine. She writes in and says, my therapist said that I don't have any diagnosable disorders and followed up with saying, quote, there's nothing wrong with you, you just will likely always have a difficult time making friends and with relationships, end of quote. I don't necessarily agree with my therapist statement. That said, I think I have codependent behaviors, if not the disorder. You helped me a lot in describing it. Some background. Uh, but just chiming in here. Yeah, so you know, I what do I say about therapists? <laughs> um always talk with your therapist, as Bob says, if, if you're like, you know what, I kind of, I was listening to this podcast and I, I think I might be codependent. And uh, let me describe what this podcaster means by codependency. You know, uh, I'm guessing that your therapist would go along with that. Uh, I would hope that your therapist would respect your opinion about you. Um, so, you know, that's the path. Uh, the other thing is that some therapists just they don't really orient themselves towards personality disorder conceptualizations. You know, there are many ways to help people and the way that I uh, proposed helping people and the way that I help people myself in my practice is the way that I talk. You know, I conceptualize people in this uh, particular way and it helps me to help people. Other people might conceptualize their clients in a much more, um, I don't know, in just a very, very different way. And if they're helpful and their outcomes are good, then it doesn't matter how they see things. And if they're not oriented towards my language system, then that's fine. Uh, Having said that, there uh, are, and I said this in the deep dive, anecdotally, I've found a lot of people are not aware of what codependency is, and that it's even a possibility of of it existing. And uh, when it comes to personality disorders, if anything, they're aware of borderline and narcissism, maybe antisocial psychopathy. And, but beyond that, they're really just not aware because each personality story is so weird. (laughs) Like they're so hard to describe and you have to experience them firsthand. And so, um, you know, the fact that you're a therapist, you know, it's a possibility your therapist just doesn't really understand what codependency really is. And, when she observes you she's just she has perhaps a very helpful way of conceptualizing you but she doesn't really conceptualize it in the you know the clinical literature way of codependency anyway you say some background my mother was an overfunctioner in my parents relationship and she was highly emotionally volatile my therapist thought my mom could be borderline which does make a lot of sense my father was narcissistic and very high on the psychopathy scale I was raised to manage my mom's emotions. My dad's violent outbursts were always someone else's fault other than his own, so I internalized the blame for his moods. I was extremely parentified and was taught that my value, and any female family member's value for that matter, was in what they provided to the family. I was constantly afraid that if I was not vigilant with my mom's mental health or if I said the wrong thing or didn't support her enough, that she could attempt suicide. It is something she had threatened before, and it is something my father suggested to her that would help the family. So just chiming in here. Jasmine, I'm so sorry you went through that. I mean, that is awful to have what seems to be a psychopathic, narcissistic father that's terrible on, you know, so many levels, the abuse, the, you're saying that he made you feel like it was all your fault for his moods. You're watching him harm other people. Uh, not only that, but your mom uh, might've been suffering from borderline and was probably, you, know, you say she was highly emotional volatile because she was being triggered a lot and, uh, by her husband and, and other people. And you're all alone taking care of your mom who is desperately trying to take care of herself while also being codependent for your father. I mean that is that is just an awful awful childhood and I'm so sorry you went through that. And you know perfect greeting brown greet b- greeting brown <laughs> It's late people it's it's late in the evening. Um breeding ground for codependency, right? Because one you're being modeled it by your mom, two you're being taught literally uh, particularly since you're a woman, a girl, that your only worth in this family is being helpful to others and you're being uh, you know, denied attunement and a chance to explore who you are and that you have value and that you can think of the self. So, yeah, it's it's a perfect breeding ground, <laughs> Gre- greeting ground. You go on here. I very much identify as the chameleon codependent as I struggle to find anything I'm truly, truly passionate about. Any of my wants or needs or goals can be morphed to fit whoever I'm around. I started dating my now ex-husband and within weeks we were engaged. I absolutely saw no red flags. I found out after we were married that he is a liar and a thief. When he overspent to punish me I thought if I just showed him how much I loved him, he'd no longer feel the need to overspend, to punish me. I supported every whim he had. I learned about any hobby he was interested in. I got second jobs and took up couponing because he couldn't remember to stick to a budget. I told myself that if I help him with his issues now, he will be available to support and love me later when I need it. Instead, he cheated on me throughout our relationship his parents blamed me and gaslighted me, by your definition of gaslighting, and he wiped out any savings I had and maxed out my credit cards before leaving when I had COVID. Just chiming in here. Wow. I mean, again, just awful. And, oh, I mean, it's, oh, just so. Uh, so to, you know, attend to your email here in terms of, I think what you're saying is because of the breeding ground, for uh, codependency in my childhood and maybe severe codependency and, you know, severe lack of connection with the self and severe lack of self-esteem. You uh, start to date and you, you, know, you say in the beginning, it's like, I didn't see any red flags, but he, it, the way you describe him, he kind of sounds like your dad, right? Someone who might be on the psychopathic scale and you might have, you know, the way psychopaths will come across in a certain way. Having said that, um, I actually had a friend uh, kind of, you know, he's more close to one of my other friends, but uh, who was absolutely a classic con artist psychopath. And I didn't, you know, I was a therapist, I think at the time and did not detect it at all. So, you know, it's not like psychopaths are obvious all the time. But anyway, it seems possible that, you picked up on certain things that he was exhibiting that reminded you of your dad or of someone who has a problem. It sounds like he both was, you know, slightly psychopathic on the, at the very least, and also had a massive spending addiction and also a, a problem with empathy. Right. And so you, you know, might've sniffed that out. It's not your fault that he did this to you. That's a hundred percent his fault but it does explain why you would potentially be attracted to him and also just jump into relationship, you know, within weeks you were engaged, that, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just awful. Uh, but you, you bring up some really uh, poignant um, self-awareness here. You're saying, I told myself if I help him with his issues now, he will be available to support and love me later when I need it. I think that is a common codependent, you know, mantra. Okay. If I, you know, cause the codependence that I would treat, it was always like, if I can just get over this hill, if I can just get past this milestone, if I can just get him to do blank, if I can just get her in this situation, then I can relax. Then I will finally be able to focus on myself. Then I will get love in return but it never happens in the codependent relationship because of the way the relationship is set up. The, the underfunctioner needs to overfunction. The overfunctioner needs to overfunction. And so if you cross that threshold, there will be another threshold that will be created within that relationship. Um, you also say here that I thought if I just showed him how much I loved him, he would no longer hurt me. And I think that's another codependent notion, I, but I don't think it's universal, of course. And then you describe the chameleon part of it so well, which is, you know, you support him, you support every whim he had, you learned every hobby he was interested in, um, you took on second jobs and took up couponing, so you know, to accommodate his problem. So yeah, and then you go on. Now I am living on my own. My mom has moved. I'm estranged from my father, and I feel freedom. I want a healthy romantic relationship, but I am working on myself because I still am drawn to underfunctioners. But I am hopeful that my codependent habits are situational as you explained they can be. And I am working on attempting to make corrective experiences and discover who I am and be happy with that person. End of email. Yeah, good for you that you're, you feel freedom, you're moving on into the future, you're, you're healing. Um, You say that you're hopeful that your codependent habits are situational. It doesn't, I mean, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if you find that your codependent habits are not situational, that they are absolutely a part of what you went through as a child. I mean, not only did you see your mother being codependent to your father, but you were forced into a codependent relationship with your mom. So it can become your template for love and relationships. And so you you might want to be careful about that for sure and really take some time to heal it as, as it seems like you're doing all right. This next email is from patron Stacy from New York. She writes this deep dive on codependency sounded a lot like my mom. I remember when I was in the second grade, I was supposed to finish a project, but I didn't do it. So she stayed up all night and finished it for me. Now that I am moved out, I can see a lot more clearly how codependent she is with my brother She will always tell me how incompetent he is, how he can't talk to people, clean his room, do his laundry, make food, meet girls, move out on his own, finish school, etc. She just recently helped buy him his apartment. She goes over frequently to clean up his place. She bought him all his furniture and appliances. I tell her that he needs to learn on his own, and she always justifies her actions, saying that if she didn't do it, he wouldn't do it, and it wouldn't happen. Now that she... Now that she moved him out, she seems to have no purpose in life at all. She isn't interested in socializing, having any hobbies or anything. It's really hard to see. End of email. Yeah, this is a, a fairly common configuration. Codependency is a codependent mother with a underfunctioning son who is an adult who is, uh, you know, not uh, growing up. And both and everyone agrees incorrectly that he is completely incompetent and can't do things on his own. And uh, as I, I think I said in the deep dive, codependent parents will fit very well with avoidant and or dependent children for obvious reasons, because the avoidant personality sort of person, their main uh, schema is I am incompetent. hundred percent. There's just no way I can do things on, on my own or no, sorry. That's dependent with avoidant. It's there's something deeply wrong with me and everyone knows it. Everyone can see just how blank I am. Everyone can see how ugly I am. Everyone can see how stupid I am. Everyone can see how awkward I am. Everyone can see how dumb I am or whatever. And so that's avoid. And then they avoid relationships and society because they're terrified of, of everyone. Seeing how blank they are. And to the dependent person, it is, I am incompetent. There's just no way I can do things on my own without my dependent, you know, person doing things for me. And so you could absolutely see avoidant slash dependent adult children fitting very well with a codependent parent because the, the parent, the codependent parent is looking at their adult child, seeing obvious problems in them and Seemingly, you know, with personality disorders, it takes a long time to change that. It takes a long time to just even recognize it in the self. And uh, so the codependent parent will fit very well with that because they get sucked in and they perpetuate the problem because as the dependent avoidant adult child uh, starts to decompensate, the, the codependent parent steps in for them and fixes it for them. This, Saves them, enables them, but it also sends this message of you can't do things on your own. You know, I, I'm I'm literally showing you that you can't do things on your own. It the the analogy that I'll give. Dogs are barking. It must be a delivery this late at night. That seems weird. But anyway, um, so the analogy that I'll give is like your kid is well. There's a number of analogies that I'll give, but. Let's say your kid is um, starting kindergarten tomorrow, and she's like, "I can't do it. Uh, I'm scared. I don't know what to do." And and your and your and your child believes it. You know, your child, your your five year old daughter is like, "I'm. This is going to be disaster. I, I don't know how to. I don't know how to do math. <laughs> I don't know how to be without you. I don't know what I'm going to do. What do, I don't know." How to do anything? What are, what are we supposed to do? And you see this utter terror. You know it's real. That the child is is rational on some level. You know it's a it's a big step going to kindergarten. Well, most parents understand. Well, but you've still got to go to kindergarten. You know it's going to be scary, but you'll adjust. Uh, and maybe the first day is going to be a disaster. You know when you it's not all kindergartners, but you might drop off your daughter and she might cry and withdraw for two or three days, but you just trust, well, you know, eventually she'll adjust. Most kids adjust. I, I, I don't know if she'll adjust, but I'm pretty sure she'll adjust. She'll open up. She'll get, you know, the teacher seems really great. The kids, the other kids seem great. The, the kid will adjust, but there will be a period of time, whether it's an hour or a few days where my daughter is going to be in a really, really dysfunctional, bad place, but that's a necessary step. You know, if I give in to this paranoid notion of my five year old daughter, then, uh, and she's asking me, please don't make me go to kindergarten. And I'm like, okay, I'm, let's not go to kindergarten. One, I am denying this child the opportunity to sit with their discomfort and learn. And two, I'm sending this message that I agree, you can't handle it. Whereas, when I drop her off and I say, you can do this. You're a strong, strong little girl. You can do these things. I know it. You've, you've done. You're a courageous, brave girl. You can do this. I, I, it'll be tough, but I know you'll learn and you'll adjust. When you say that, and obviously just through your behavior, drop your kid off at kindergarten. It's a powerful message to that kid that you believe in them. That you trust that even though they will struggle and there might be a week of of utter suffering, that they will emerge on the other side more competent and more confident and more self-esteem. You know, Um, also the only way in this, you know, with this analogy, the only way if, if, if it's inevitable that the daughter is going to feel a lot of homesickness when she goes to kindergarten for the first time. There's no way for this child to grow and progress into independence without going through a lot of suffering at first. The codependent parent is so anxious about the suffering of this other person that they won't allow it. And they need the codependent person, or they need the uh, underfunctioner to remain underfunctioning. So uh, they will avoid putting their child through it. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, I definitely relate to the aspect of other people's problems feeling a lot like my own problem. It's hard to imagine myself feeling any other way sometimes. With one of my long-term boyfriends, he had some signs of dependent personality disorder, and I totally enabled it. When my sister visited us, she noted... That when I wasn't home, he was much more actively involved in things like household chores. But the second I would get home, he would revert back into somewhat a helpless state and say, and say he just didn't know what to do when it came to things like loading a dishwasher or doing laundry. I assume it's because every time he was stressed out about being unsure about something or felt a task wasn't pleasant, I would just do it for him. When... We first started dating. He told me his favorite thing about me was that I took care of him and he would ask me to do so many small tasks, including mailing a letter because he didn't know what to do. And and I usually did it. I had another boyfriend who had a mild anger issue, which he was self-conscious about. And rather than be honest about how he was affecting me with his anger issue, I would say things like, oh, everyone has bad moods on on, a rare, on rare occasions, when I did bring it up, he would say things like, well, now I'm going to be afraid to express myself. I don't want to, su- I don't want to suppress my emotions. So I kind of felt like I needed to placate and not make him feel bad. End of email. Yeah, anonymous patron, you're, you're really describing a lot of aspects of codependency. You say, you know, you can relate to the aspect of other people's problems feeling a lot like your own problems. And it's, you're saying it's hard to imagine feeling any other way for the codependent person that that's, that's the reality. It's just like, wait, so I I'm, I think weirdly, you know, like other people's problems aren't my problems. Like it, it, it's such a foreign idea. And so counter to all their schemas, when you present this idea to codependent people, they'll, they'll look at you like you're crazy. It's like talking to someone with borderline and saying, your feelings of abandonment are often overblown if not completely invented by your wounds being triggered to say that to a borderline there's like uh that's crazy talk you're insane people are abandoning me all the time you know now what will happen with borderline people is they'll often push people away and then abandonment will happen but anyway so to the codependent to say you know other people's problems they're literally not your problems. You can help, but you you know, you don't have to. And it's not your job to help other people's problems. That it's your job to be a good human being, but that doesn't involve you sacrificing yourself for other people. Like you deserve to take care of yourself first, right? You know, you in the airplane, you put the oxygen on yourself first and then on your kids. You you don't you don't put it on your kids first and then die, you know. It's just not the way that you do things. And then you also say here that you had a a boyfriend with dependent personality. And again, that fits very well with codependence. And also you're saying that when he, when you weren't around, he didn't act as dependent. And so that's why the, the codependent and dependent, and these things mean different things. Remember the codependence means the co-alcoholic and, uh, it seems like we should have a different word for it, but anyway, and dependent means orally dependent on humans, but the codependent person fits very well with the dependent person for obvious reasons. The dependent person actually believes they're incompetent and the codependent person also needs to believe the other person is competent and is always giving advice. And then you say that you're, uh, you know, when we first started dating, his favorite thing about me was that I took care of him. That's a frequent dependent person thing to say is like, I'm just so glad you take care of me. Cause that is their main concern. Like 51% of their, of their personality is oriented towards retaining care from their caregiver. Uh, and then you say that you would make excuses for his bad for his anger problems. And that's another codependent thing. That's, that's enabling, right? that it 's not just about alcoholism or drug abuse or something it absolutely can be about personality traits that codependent people uh they and then they don't say it necessarily consciously it it'll just be like this knee jerk reaction you you see you know you saw your partner going oh golly i get I get angry i get I get angry too angry sometimes." And without even thinking, you just quickly respond as well, you know, some people have moods. It's not a big deal. And because it's not, it's anxiety you're feeling. You're feeling anxiety on two levels. One is, oh boy, if he feels the distress of his own acknowledgement of his personality, then he might get worse and then things will be really bad. So I have to solve that right away by telling him, no, 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 everything's fine. The other thing is, is if he starts to go down a road of recovery regarding his anger, then I won't have anyone to be codependent with. And that's terrifying to me. And so I'm just going to tell him, no, no, you're fine. Just stay how you are. You know, it's this unconscious knee-jerk reaction of don't change. You know, everything's fine. Just just stay the same, that that kind of thing. Um, let's see. He also said that. When you would bring it up to him, finally, you know, you'd say, hey, you know, you do have an anger problem. He would say he would have these excuses like, well, now I don't want to express myself. Um, And then you said, so I felt kind of like I needed to placate. So that's a very common, um, you know, negative feedback loop. If you're familiar with system systems talk to push the two person system back to homeostasis. So and this is something that I work a lot on with codependent people is. You know, as we talk about how to um, extract yourself from the enmeshment of codependency, uh, they, you know, we'll, we'll talk. Okay, I'm going to go home, and the next time he gets angry, I'm going to point it out to him. You know, okay, instead of placating. Okay, good. So you know, she goes home, she points it out, and then she comes in and she says, "Okay, I did what you said, but it didn't work." And I'm like, "Oh, tell me what happened." Well, he got angry, and I pointed it out to him. I didn't enable him, and then he said that. I was making him feel like he couldn't express his feelings and he and he started to, you know, act erratically. And so, you know, everything just blew up in my face and so I went back to placating him. And what I will say is, well, that's to be expected. If you're going to, you know, upend the rules of this system, there's going to be a reaction from other people, but you have to persevere through that. It's not like you're going to change, you know, from being codependent with your husband and he's just going to be like, "Oh, cool." You know, he, he's gonna. It's not going to feel good to him. It's going to be. It's going to be very scary for him. He he really needs you, or he feels like he needs you to be this way for him. He he actually will benefit in the end when you change, but at first he's. It's not going to feel that way to him. It's going to feel very foreign at the very least, and it could be very scary. And you know, he he could feel untethered because it's like, wait, where's my enabler? Where's my mommy? And, uh, that, but that's okay. You just, that's part of the codependent sort of kryptonite is when I try not to be codependent, the person of concern has problems. Well, I better be go, I better go back to being codependent. It's like, no, no, that's the whole point. You have to push through that and allow the, you know, so within this situation, and I don't know, obviously you'd want to talk to a therapist about this, but if someone came to me, I could see it being possible that it's like, okay, go home, confront him on his anger. And when he explodes or has some sort of decompensation, just say, Hey, you know, is there anything I can do to help? And if he's like, um, you know, and, and then if he asks you to do something and it's possible for you to do it, and it's, it's not unreasonable request from you to you, then, you know, you could accommodate, but you know, I would be skeptical about helping him because it's his anger and you're not his therapist and you're not his mom. You know, I, <laughs> as I say this, I, I, I've, I've had this conversation so many times with codependent people, you know. You're not his therapist. You're not his parent. You're not his mommy. You're not their daddy. You're not their savior. They have their problems and they have to face them. And maybe that means that they go through a period of a few years where they really kind of struggle. But... Only through that period of time will they be able to, to realize that they're the ones with the hands on, on the steering wheel and no one else is going to come save them. You know, Because you have saved them so many times, when you take your hands off the wheel, they don't put their hands on the wheel because they assume you'll come back. You'll come back and you will, especially if things start to get a little wonky, they know that you will step in and you will save them. So you have to go through a long, very difficult period of time where you don't save them. And they have a lot of bumps in the road, maybe some fairly catastrophic problems. But they learn, oh, I'm the one with the hands on the wheel. You know, like I was talking earlier how I don't have codependent traits. And one of the things that sort of protects me from that is independence, and sometimes pathological independence, where I don't actually ask for help when I absolutely should. But I, I don't know, you know, and I think it's because I grew up with three siblings. And so uh, there were a lot of times growing up where it was just like, no one had time to help me. And so I just had to do, th- I just had to figure it out on my own. And so uh, when something is going wrong in my life, I do not think about other people helping me with that and I also don't think other people need help with that because in my family the, the family I grew up in, the style was it, there wasn't a lot of interdependence there wasn't a lot of uh, people depending on other people for everyday life things, we were kind of all just said you know, you'll figure it out, you'll you'll do <laughs> and I think, you know it went a little too far at times but um, but anyway, so Helping codependent people live in the space of other people's problems are their own, and the best thing they can go—you know—I'm telling the codependent person—the best thing that your underfunctioner can experience is the pain of having to face their problems on their on their own. That is a wonderful pain. In the same way that the, you know, the daughter going to kindergarten—one of the best learning experiences she's going to have that you're going to bless her with that you're going to gift her is the discomfort of going to kindergarten without you there that is incredibly uncomfortable for her but it's a gift that you're giving her she is going to learn through that pain and through that suffering that she can do it on her own but she can you can't tell her that you can't say hey you can do that on your own The only way she's going to learn that is if she suffers the only way. And it's a gift of development that you're giving your child. And so to the codependent, I'm frequently trying to inspire them (laughs) because a lot of codependent people will learn that they're codependent and be like, Oh, I'm codependent. But the fear and the schemas are so entrenched that I, as a therapist have to be very convincing <laughs> I've had I've had a lot of conversations with codependents where I'm I'm you know really trying to insp- you know we'll spend 6 months getting to know their codependency and then 6 years where I'm trying to inspire them through charisma that they need to stop being codependent for everyone's sake not just their own but for the underfunctioners as well And it gets weird, because as a therapist, how am I supposed to know that my guidance in this area is actually wise? I mean, what if I told, you know, a a codependent mom with a a 35-year-old dependent son still living at home, what if I, you know, am pushing her for her sake and his sake to stop enabling and to, uh, you know, draw boundaries, say kicking him out of the house or something. And what if he dies? You know, it, I don't know. I don't, it, I, it's never happened by the way, but those are worries that I have because it would really prove the codependent point. If something horrible and catastrophic happened when the codependent took their hands off the wheel. Right. I, I'll tell you, it's never happened, but, uh, but I, you know, I've been right there terrified. I mean, I could get sued, <laughs> I think you know for for directly advising someone you know I never tell them that's what they have to do, but uh we first establish we we agree together that they have codependency and then I try to support them in their own efforts to try to convince themselves of their codependent issues but but anyway that's something that um as a therapist, for you therapists out there, you have to deal with. When when you're helping codependent people deal with underfunctioners, like you will start to feel their codependent uh fears. And it's real. You know, it's 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 easier said than done, I guess is the point. It's easier to say, hey, I'm gonna stop being codependent. It's much harder to actually not be codependent when you're in the midst of that enmeshment. All right, this next email is from annual patron Deb from Florida. She writes Thank you for doing this deep dive on codependency. I think this definitely needs more attention because I sense many, many people are struggling with schemas of being over-responsible for others' lives. I wish this term could be separated more from the addiction field because I see it affecting those in abusive relationships, whether it originated from families with addiction or not. I personally see codependency originating from the same shame-filled and neglectful upbringing that could result in narcissistic personality the difference being in the tactics of control on the complex PTSD forums. They describe it as the fun response to trauma versus the fight response to trauma. Yeah. So just chiming in here. Yeah. I I agree that, uh, and I have in my deep dive separated codependency from addiction, certainly as a part of it, a subset of codependency is, uh, within dependency, chemical dependency, but, uh, it's you know just as if not more often involved in non uh substance abuse relationships and then you're also saying that uh codependency can originate in the same sh- in the same environment shame-filled and neglectful upbringing that could result in narcissistic personality i agree with that uh you know we heard from that previous um talking about i think it was jasmine talking about how she was um you know, being neglected as a child, it's psychopathic, narcissistic father, and then a borderline mom who required uh, Jasmine, I think, was it Jasmine? let D-D-D, d d Yeah, Jasmine, required Jasmine to be uh, basically the mother's mother. So the, uh, the Jasmine was mothering her mother and her mother was mothering the father. And so that's an extreme neglect. And uh, you're saying that the uh, complex PTSD forums they describe it as the fawn response. So, this is the uh, what I would say the appease response. Um, but fawn is just another word for it. You know, we have the fight, flight, freeze, or appease, and the appease or fawn response is to accommodate. Right, as you know, your abuser is coming at you, and your solution is to just uh, accommodate them. And in Sexual assaults, you know, you'll see this happen where people will just they'll give in because they've been taught that that's the road to safety. You know, the the, the road to safety is is through the just to let it happen and, and to even appease the person because it'll it'll reduce the, the harm through the process. And, uh, you know, sexual abusers will actually look for people who have been trained to be that way from previous experiences. But anyway, so. You're saying on the forums are saying that a codependency is the fun response versus narcissism. Narcissism is the is the fight response. Yeah, I'd say that that's one way of looking at it. You go on to say, "I've come to see that codependency was modeled in my family, which is full of enmeshment. I did not feel important. I do not have. I did not get my emotional needs met. I experienced abandonment. These factors likely contributed to my codependency." It's interesting thinking of it as a personality disorder. My SPAN Fisher score was 65. So you know, just chiming in here, the 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 measure that I liked was the SPAN Fisher Codependency Scale, um, and 65 uh, score. Let's see, what is that? <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to look it back up anyway. Um, so that's I think pretty high uh, for me because of the familial relationships and modeling. There seems to be no alternative to the distorted ideas of codependency. In my world, self-sacrifice and achievement were the only ways of getting positive attention. The two kinds of people that seemed to exist were either screw-ups or super women. Emotional control was a hundred percent normalized. Desperation and fear were always in the air. The fact that millions relate to these issues means the field should take it more seriously. End of email. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's interesting because, say, for my journey with codependency is, you know, I've definitely treated it before, but I don't think until doing the deep dive did I fully appreciate everything that it involves and the nuances, you know, the nuance between just circumstantial enabling and over-functioning versus codependent personality and the schemas that, that fuel it. I don't think I really fully appreciated that. And... It's embarrassing to be 25 years into my career and have that happen and to start to see people in my life like, oh, I think that person has codependency and to just now start to see it, you know, and it makes you wonder, like, well, what haven't I seen as of yet? And that's okay, You know, I I think that and I tell this to my students that there's a learning curve and to learn everything about psychology, um, you know, to get to like the 99th percentile, I think it takes 50 years and, uh, I'm 25 years in and it can be very distressing to students to hear that, to be like, wait, so, uh, even after I graduate with a master's degree, having spent three to five years and, you know, 50 to a hundred thousand dollars on this thing, I'm going to be like, 5% down the road of knowledge. Uh, That's very upsetting to me. And I say, uh, well, one, that's true because uh, 25 years in, I'm still learning things. I mean, there were significant things that I learned like 15 years into my career, like things about trauma, things about myself that were revelatory. And I thought, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed that I didn't know this earlier. (laughs) These are fundamental things about humans and psychotherapy and psychology that I'm just now crystallizing. Like that's upsetting, you know? And so with codependency, um, you know, I agree agree with you, Deb, that uh, it needs more attention because it's so prevalent. It's such a problem, right? And even those people in our field that have some knowledge of it, it, it seems like it's really limited. It's It seems like it's, well, just stop it kind of a thing. Stop enabling or you're, you're, you have no boundaries, you know, you'll hear stuff like that. And instead of recognizing that this is a full blown personality disorder potentially with, you know, all the wounds and the schemas thereof. Um, the other thing you said here was that uh, in your family This is very interesting. It's a very common scenario. There were two kinds of people that seemed to exist in my family. They were either screw-ups or superwomen. I think, you know, that's very interesting. All right, another email here. Patron Jesse from Kirkland. This is a colleague of mine. It's wonderful to hear from you, Jesse. Uh, He says, thank you for the episode on codependency, Kirk. I found your analysis of Codependence Anonymous to be very accurate in that it is a mix of codependence and people with dependency issues. I first went to Al-Anon to find insight into my mother's drinking and how it affected me as a child. I then migrated to Codependence Anonymous and I found people there were mostly dealing with dependency issues and not codependency issues. I then went to adult children's of alcoholics and found that problem to include people and found that that program to include people who were over functioning and codependent and much less dealing with dependency issues. I attended for a year and it was very helpful to me and of email. Interesting, Jesse. So you're telling me that in Codependence Anonymous, it was more dependency, more dependent personality and less codependency. But adult children of alcoholics, it was more codependency that you were finding and less dependent personality, which makes sense to me because adult children of alcoholics, you know, obviously attracts adult children of alcoholics who are much more likely to be codependent and frankly, less likely to be dependent because if you have a parent who is alcoholic, uh, it doesn't really work to be dependent because your parent isn't going to necessarily help you. You have to, a classic thing for, Uh, adult children of alcoholics is you have to grow up really fast and to grow up really fast is counter to becoming dependent personality. Um, And it also makes sense that codependent anonymous would attract a lot of dependent personality people because colloquially and some extent clinically codependent has become synonymized with dependent personality. All right. This next email is from annual patron Mitch from Antioch, Seattle. He says, "Cool deep dive. I liked how you went into discuss into the distinctions between enmeshment, dependency and codependency. As someone with a 12-step background, it was a pet peeve to hear people misuse the term codependency. My mother has codependent tendencies that I have had to unlearn as an adult. It has been a difficult it has been difficult to process my resentment against her since her suffocating invasiveness was so closely tied to love." that my differentiation was perceived as a rejection by her. I I resonate a bit with the chameleon type in that I feel my personality shift depending on my partner's strengths and weaknesses, but I no longer unconsciously seek out damaged goods, quote-unquote, in my relationships to give myself someone to fix. After some toxic relationships, I have started allowing myself to be more vulnerable, though as someone with avoidant tendencies, that is a long process." Just chiming in here. Well, I'm really glad for you, Mitch, that you're able to heal and uh, learn. And, um, you know, you really deserve that. And, yeah, it's a lot of good self-awareness here of, well, you know, the path to becoming more happy and more balanced is to become more vulnerable and to ask for help and to reach out and to not stuff those feelings and to not focus on other people's problems instead of my own. But my avoidant tendencies are kind of getting in the way. But, uh, you know, it sounds like you're well on your way, which is which is great. Um, You go on to say here, if my love language is acts of service, what sort of litmus test might I ask myself to determine whether my desire to do something like clean my partner's kitchen or run errands for them is a form of enabling or not? Just chiming in here. Yeah, this is a really good question. Uh, if your love language is acts of service, meaning that you show you love someone by being very helpful and useful, and by you know literally doing acts of service like running an errand for them, you know, hey, let me get that for you, or hey, let me show you how much I love you by um, you know, and and really we all do this, uh, and we should be doing it when. Uh, I don't know my wife is overwhelmed with something and I see that she has this errand on her plate I'll be like hey I'll do that i it seems like you're a little overwhelmed I can do that for you and she'll be like oh I can you know really sense that it helps her out and so and it's and I like to do it it makes me feel like a good husband it makes me feel like I'm being a good person you know and and so we, it's a win-win. I get to feel good about myself for helping and and she gets to have a break. So uh, acts of service are fine and, and they're great and they should really be done by all couples. But if you're particularly oriented that way and you're codependent, how do you differentiate? Also, how do you even know your uh, orientation towards acts of service isn't entirely based on your codependent leanings? You know, I don't know. These are tough questions to ask I, I would say the path to just, you know wisdom is exploration and, and and watching it what it does and that, that's usually what I will uh, talk about with people is well what does it do? you know what's the effect because if the effect uh, with a partner by providing acts of service is to make them more dependent on you is to make them feel like they can't do those things on their own, is to enable them from their own problems. You know, like they created. You know, they're frequent. There's a pattern of cr- them creating problems, and you, through your acts of service, save them from the consequences of their problems. Then, although you know it might be coming from a good place from you, it, it ultimately is is destructive. But in all likelihood, it is coming from a a um, you know codependent place. And I will say that, uh, like for me, I'm, I'm not codependent. And so my acts of service toward my wife, um, are, uh, I mean, I'd have to do a, a pretty quick inventory of, of the kinds of things that I do, but there's really no risk of it becoming codependent, uh, based and, you know, enmeshment based because of who I am and my tendencies, right? Um, so if, if you have a codependent or an enmeshment angle to your personality, you'd have to be really careful about it. You know, I I would say you'd have to err on the side of, well, maybe I need to, that would be another thing to think of. It's like, okay, this is a gray area. If I'm going to do this for my partner, I want to do, I feel a real compulsion and I know it will really help them. And I know they'll actually really receive this as, you know, me helping them. So no one's going to complain. I'm not going to complain about doing this for them. They're not going to complain about me doing it for them. But this does have some risk of it playing into a codependent underfunction or dynamic. In those situations, what I'd recommend people do is like, well, what's another way I can show love? Because there's a lot of ways you can show love, you know, Uh, and the love language thing is adjustable. You know, you can learn and bolster other ways of, of love. And really Mitch, it's, you know, it's possible that codependent people um, really have a harder time showing love through other ways, you know, that they're really used to almost purely and solely showing love through acts of service. And so uh, I, if you have that risk, I, I would, I'd be careful around it at the same time. You know, there's probably a lot of moments where it's not unhealthy. Just going on with your email here. Um, It's often discussed in Al-Anon, SLAA, and Codependence Anonymous, the phenomenon of the codependency as a mask, mask for covert substance abuse behaviors. For example, a man is dating a woman who gets blackout drunk every night, and the man has panic attacks and insomnia because of it, and if he doesn't get his two beers per night, he... Uh, uh he see he he has insomnia he has panic attacks and insomnia if he doesn't have his two beers a, a night he and he can still come across as the responsible one and think of himself think to himself i don't have a problem she's the one with the problem yeah uh i read that poorly but <laughs> essentially what you're uh you know bringing to the listeners is that there's a common phenomenon for codependents to um be masking their their dependency, chemical dependency through their codependency in that in comparison to the underfunctioner, their substance abuse problem seems, you know, minuscule and yet, and they will even blame their, you know, what they would call occasional substance use on the stress that the chemically dependent person puts them through. And, in comparison they can deny their own problems you know they're they're enabling someone else's problem and they're denying their own and this is also a classic projective identification prep uh, and a classic projection that they think of themselves as having a problem but they have a really hard time admitting it so they're um, displacing it onto someone else so projecting it onto someone else you go on to say since getting sober i've gone out with a few people who seemed great at first but I realized we're harboring addictions that they were completely in denial of and not even willing to entertain the possibility of getting help. I felt somewhat betrayed by the fact that they never mentioned their substance use in their personal ad or any of, their, or any of our first dates, yet I also sympathize that the stigma of having that sort of problem means that people try and keep it a secret. At what point in dating are they obligated to come out about that part of their life? Or in other words, when is it appropriate, if ever, to, to point blank ask someone if they are still using or drinking without upsetting them, and if they're honest about it, is a partner struggling with addiction necessarily a deal breaker for a recovering addict, even if they have multiple years uh, sober, and or if the substance they use is a different one than their own former drug of choice? End of email. Yeah, there's a lot of questions in there. Um, let me see if I can sort of parse this out. So you're saying, you know, at what point are people obliged to, to tell you, you know, I don't think there's any obligation really. Um, I wouldn't frame it that way, but it's certainly, uh, and then you also ask, you know, sort of the other side of the coin is like, when is it appropriate to ask? I would say if it is a must that you have someone that is, um, you know, I don't know what criteria you're using for having a problem or not having a problem. But whatever that, wherever that threshold is, I would absolutely tell people right from the beginning, look, I am a recovering blank and I need to be with someone that is not using or not using beyond this threshold or whatever. I would say that in your Tinder profile because there are other people who absolutely... Are going to jump all over that because they're like, oh my God, that's exactly what I'm looking for. And it's really hard to find people like that because so many people have mild to severe substance use problems. So I can't imagine uh, just being in Seattle and just like, you know, swiping right or, you know, going on uh, dating apps or dating in general. Uh, trying to randomly find someone who is compatible with me personality wise and not suffering from an ongoing drug problem, a drug and alcohol problem, um, especially when the threshold for defining a problem um, can be you know, pretty low when you're um, recovering, uh, you know, uh, when you're going through recovery. You know, it's not uncommon for people going through recovery to define a substance abuse problem as like drinking caffeine every day. I mean, most don't, but I've heard people that are going through Al-Anon or, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous will say that they need to be free of all substances, completely cigarettes, caffeine, you know, all sorts of things. And so um, it wouldn't be unusual to have uh, essentially your threshold set such that like only 2% of the population in your area actually fits those criteria. (laughs) I don't know where your threshold is, but, um, but yeah, I would absolutely be upfront. I wouldn't say that people are obligated to tell you. I, 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 I get that it frustrates you, but you know, you're aware you're, you've been in recovery and you're, I think, training to be a therapist. And so, you know, other people aren't going to be like that. It's, it's, um, a lot to ask in our society for people to um, become aware of of their problems because we just never talk about it or very rarely talk about it. So it's you know denial and normalization is extremely common, especially if you know you're suffering and you come from a family that had had that problem. So yeah, and then you say you know is it necessarily a deal breaker if you're in recovery and you are dating someone who is um you know struggling with an addiction is it a deal breaker it, you know it could be for for you uh, it's not you know written in the stars that it has to be a, a deal breaker it just depends on where you're at um i would say that it, it wouldn't it, so there are two wisdoms one is is look why why screw around you know with this issue just find someone who also is in recovery and the two of you can you know it's like finding two vegetarians or you know two people who like to exercise a lot it's it'd be a pretty big mismatch if you're like heavily in recovery and it's a big part of your life and your partner has never been to an AA meeting and drinks you know binge drinks on the weekends or smokes pot every day or something you know it's it'd be really hard to make that work. I mean, it could work, but it, it'd be hard. Right. So, um, so that's one wisdom. The other wisdom is, uh, you know, to live and let live. It's like you're in recovery. Great. And say you meet someone and you hit it off and they smoke pot every day and you look at it like, wow, you know, they got a problem and they smoke pot to cope with, uh, stress at work. They, smoke pot to escape. They smoke pot to deal with their traumas that they were, that they had growing up. And sometimes they, and they often smoke so much that they're inaccessible to you. They just kind of become blank and, and you lose contact with them. And uh, you know, it's unpleasant, but it doesn't, it doesn't automatically make that relationship um, unworkable. You know, I've, I've, in fact, I've had couples like this where one is going through recovery and the other one is doing exactly what I was saying regarding marijuana, and you know, it. There's conflicts and there's discussions and there's maybe cutting back here or this sort of thing, but you know, substances are complicated and people's relationships with them are complicated and and people are free to do what they want and as long as there's 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 a way to make it work such that the person that is still using doesn't negatively impact the person going through recovery. Having said all that, getting back to my previous point is that a lot of people in recovery will advise you do not play around with that because they will suck you back in and you will have a a relapse. And that's not, you know, to date someone who is in the throes of an addiction is basically you know, the slippery slope towards addiction yourself. And there's some wisdom to that, too. There's just no, you know, cut and dry, black or white answer to that. All right. End of email. So I thought I was going to be able to get to all the emails, but I'm barely scratching the surface at this point. <laughs> so, and I'm two hours in and it's almost midnight. So I probably should, you know, just stop here. I'll, I'll mark my spot and I'll, I'll do another episode. In which I continue, because I, you know, I find these emails to be fascinating. All y'all are bringing up some really interesting points and some interesting examples. Uh, For me, I kind of like just mulling this stuff over. It's furthering my understanding, uh, which is, you know, what are the huge benefits of being a podcaster? Um, You know, along those lines, what I was talking about earlier in terms of the learning curve uh, for me—if you just the general learning curve, average learning curve of a therapist—but for me becoming a podcaster has drastically increased my learning in the field because, you know, I've been a professor for a long time, but one thing about being a professor and being a professor definitely helps, you to learn or gives the opportunity to learn because not only do you have to learn the stuff to teach it, but you have to learn it so well that when people confront you about the inconsistencies in the theory, you have to be able to respond intelligently, not defensively, but, uh, you know, you have to Understand it well enough so that you can respond and to not only teach the theory but also to help them to integrate it into their lives and to apply it to clients. You know, it's um, so I've definitely learned a fair amount about theory as a professor um, and you know, because I really put my mind to it. But the thing about teaching is you teach the same, you generally teach the same classes, you know, year to year. You certainly could teach various classes, but even in those, even if you taught various classes, the classes tend to deal with the same set of things, the same fundamental things that you need to teach trainees in graduate school, you know, things like a codependent personality disorder, or even any personality disorder, for that matter, there's just not a lot of time to focus on that kind of stuff, because there's there's more fundamental things that need to be discussed, in, in, at least in the eye of most program directors and including myself, for that matter, when I was program director. I mean, there are fundamental things about ethics and about how to take notes as a therapist and uh, how to listen well. You know, the, these are more fundamental things. But anyway, um, but being a podcaster, the thing about being a podcaster is literally every episode is about a different topic, or uh, or I will say often, I'm, I'm driven to... Make new topic episodes. You know, I'm always trying to stay relevant. I'm always trying to make it interesting for y'all. I, I don't want to repeat myself. I want to go into new areas. And so when I do that, it's a whole other frontier that I suddenly become aware of. And I become, um, and by the nature of you all becoming patrons, it gives me time because y- you literally pay my bills so that I can sit in front of the computer for a month studying something like codependency. I mean, that's how this whole thing works, by the way. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, really learn it. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've, I've written research papers, dissertations, and, and it's akin to that. You know, when you do a research or a dissertation, you're supposed to spend months and months reading and thinking and writing and, you know, getting feedback. And that's essentially what I'm doing when I do these deep dives, you know, i I'm I'm becoming this mini-expert on this. I've, I've been given the opportunity to become this mini-expert on this topic and and to do it with so many new topics month to month and to, to learn so much. And, and it all compounds on each other because the more I learn about codependent personality disorder, the more I learn about personality disorders in general, the more I learn about uh, you know chemical dependency in general, the more I learn about systems theory and schemas and attachment. You know, like It all is integrated it all is there's it's synergistic um you know the fact that i can speak uh, fairly easily about uh, codependent personality disorders because i've done so many deep dives on other personality disorders and i've done so many deep dives on theory you know it all builds on itself and um so i guess i'm just saying that i like that <sighs> it's really it really is um what gets me up in the morning you know, uh, cause like, honestly, between y'all, if you're still listening to this and me, um, I don't have to do any deep dives, right? Like it's not, um, it, it is pe- things, you know, it is what people ask me to do, but really I could coast and I could, uh, I could just sort of kick back and do much easier type of content. Right. Um, but. I'm personally driven to do these deep dives. Like if no one listened to them, I'm pretty sure I'd do them anyway. And I did in the beginning of this podcast, you know, for years and years, no one, very hardly anyone listened to this thing. And I was still driven to do this kind of content because uh, it's, it's interesting to learn, you know, it feels, I don't know. What does it feel like? It feels good to have, a grasp on why people are the way that they are. It just, it feels so, is it safe, safe feeling or something? Is it some kind of command over reality or something? But is it being, I think, you know, it's a big part being useful, you know, to understand is to help and to be helpful is to be useful. And I don't know, but, um, That's just me rambling at midnight to y'all after two plus hours of talking. And tune in next time when I uh, chip away at this mountain of emails regarding codependency. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.